Columbia's news headquarters in New York, Bob Trout speaking. Let's continue now Columbia's invasion coverage by going over some of the details of the invasion, which we know, and bringing ourselves up to date. Here's a summary up to this point. The indications are, in the early hours of the second day of our invasion of Western Europe, that all is going well. We're continuing to push inland through Normandy along a front which has been estimated at 60 miles, although the estimate, of course, is not official. As yet, there are no signs of any immediate German counterattack, and our ground casualties have been light, much lighter than had been anticipated. Considering the scope of the operations, naval losses have also been extremely light. The first German prisoners have been brought back to Great Britain on minesweepers, along with the first Allied casualties. The waters of the English Channel are still kicking up, but despite the rather unfavorable weather, we are succeeding in pouring a steady stream of men and supplies into the beachhead zone somewhere between Cherbourg and Le Havre. The Germans say that fighting in this area is now in full swing, and the Germans admit that we've managed to widen the beachhead. The Germans are also telling of Allied landings on two of the British Channel Islands near the coast of France, and they're predicting more landings along that stretch of land running from Dunkirk to Calais. The very latest German story is this from the German Transocean Agency, which says that further Allied landings under cover of a heavy naval bombardment are now being carried out in the area of the Orne Estuary which is on the north bank shore of the Norman Peninsula, southwest of La Havre, and northeast of the town of Caen. That story is a German story put out by the German Transocean Agency. Columbia's shortwave listening station here in New York has heard the British Broadcasting Corporation say that behind the German front in France, drastic new restrictions have been imposed upon the population of certain French departments by the German military authorities. From dusk to dawn, BBC said, the people are forbidden to move in the streets, and it's threatened that the German troops will shoot any who disregard the code of instructions in these particular French departments. In other words, a French district. Earlier in the day, Prime Minister Winston Churchill reported to the House of Commons that the Allied troops were then fighting in the streets of the ancient town of Caen, and that they had pushed inland at some points as much as 10 miles. We heard a bit later, in fact, just an hour or so ago, that the Prime Minister has promised to make a new statement at the House of Commons today, that's Wednesday, on overnight developments in the Allied invasion of France. And it was also revealed, when this dispatch came through from London, that between his two statements to the House yesterday, the Prime Minister made a flying trip to the motor caravan from which General Eisenhower is now directing the invasion somewhere in rural England. Overhead, our flyers are still furnishing a solid air cover. Since dawn this morning, that is Tuesday morning, more than 5,000 sorties have been flown, and tonight, heavy forces of Royal Air Force big night bombers are out over Europe. It was revealed during this evening that the first ground troops to set foot on French soil were Americans, but they shared first honors with Anglo-American parachutists who landed about an hour before the troops went ashore on the beaches. The most dramatic among a flock of rumors, all of them unconfirmed, of course, is a dispatch from Ankara, which tells of an Allied landing in Greece. However, that is entirely unconfirmed, and, of course, we should take it with a large pinch of salt until we hear more about it. At 10 o'clock tonight, President Roosevelt spoke to the nation by radio, calling upon all to pray for victory, freedom, and peace. The president said that our invading forces will find their road long and hard. He said the enemy is strong and that the enemy may hurl our forces back. 
success may not come with rushing speed, the president said, but we shall return again and again. He added, we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. So solemn did the president consider the occasion of his broadcast prayer tonight that for the very first time in a presidential broadcast from the White House, photographers and newsreel cameramen were barred at the president's request. As usual, the president spoke from the small diplomatic reception room in the White House. Seated beside him were Mrs. Roosevelt and their son-in-law and daughter, Mr. and Mrs. John Bodeger. The president preceded the prayer by observing that when he spoke to the nation last night on the fall of Rome, he knew then that Allied forces at that moment were launched on an invasion which, he said, has come to pass with success thus far. And then slowly and solemnly he spoke the prayer for the nation. Naturally, word of the opening of the Second Front has been received with much enthusiasm in Moscow. To the Russian people, the signal for invasion sees a three-year-long dream come true. And tonight, there are reports that the Russian armies are massing again on the Eastern Front. Perhaps for a new drive from the East, of course, we don't know when it will begin. Our American flying fortresses, from their new bases in Russia, flew out over the Balkans today and bombed an airfield at Galati in Romania. In Italy, the battle to destroy the German armies is continuing without let-up. And as the Allied troops spread out from Rome, thousands of German prisoners are now being added to the bag. That's the latest from Italy. A few words from the Pacific, the Japanese on Biak Island are being pushed steadily back. Truk, Ponape, and Nauru have been bombed again. But in China, the Japanese are still cutting through the heart of that country. That summary, I think, brings us up to date on the authentic details which we know so far about the invasion now that it is some 24 hours old. And now we're still here at Columbia's News Headquarters in New York, and Quentin Reynolds is now going to speak to us. As the action on the French invasion coast does go into its second day, the question of the morale of our troops is perhaps more important than ever. Quentin Reynolds knows a great deal about that morale, and he's here now to tell us about it. Here he is. Exactly two and a half years ago today, that comfortable world we once knew came to an end. We didn't know very much about the Germans then. They were far away, remote. But during this past two and a half years, we have learned a lot about both of our enemies. Today, our sons are learning even more about the German. His experiences in Sicily and in Italy have taught him to hate the German soldier and to know him for the ruthless, dirty fighter that he is. The Russians always call the Germans the Fritzies. The British civilians and soldiers call the Germans either the Jerrys or the Huns. Our boys, with fine contempt, call the Germans the Krauts. Usually real fighting men respect each other. Our men lost all respect for the Germans when they faced them in Sicily and later in Italy. In Sicily, our first division saw the Germans raise a white flag of surrender on the top of a ridge. And when our men rushed up the hill to accept the surrender, they were met with murderous machine gun fire. This gave them an inkling as to what manner of enemy they were fighting. Again in Sicily... And any member of Oklahoma's 45th Division will attest to the truth of this. The Germans did something that perhaps no army in the history of military warfare has ever done. They booby-trapped their own dead. So that when, when our men went to bury them, mines tied to the bodies exploded, killing more than 20 of our boys. Now our troops finally realize that everything that we at home thought of the Japs 
was equally true of the Germans. They were hard, arrogant men, schooled in the belief that they were the master race. Since boyhood, they had marched and sung militant songs and lived only for the day when Hitler would turn them loose against our kind of civilization, for which they had nothing but contempt. They threw the military rule book away when they went into action. In the short space of two and a half years, we have trained an army that today is meeting these professional murderers on better than even terms. This is one of the greatest military miracles of the ages. Our men are good because they know their enemy. They don't underestimate him, as so many at home have underestimated him. They have talked to German prisoners, and they know now that this is a fight to the finish, with no holds barred, against an enemy which refuses to conform to even the most elementary rules of decency. Last September in Italy, we captured a great many German prisoners. I talked to some of them. One of them was wounded quite badly, and it looked as though he might die. The doctor asked him some questions. He asked him, for instance, what is your religion? The dying Nazi soldier lifted his head. Hatred gleamed from his eyes, and he spit out, National Socialism is my religion. Ich bin immer ein Nazi. I am a Nazi forever. This is the type of man our boys are fighting tonight. The Nazi ideology, which rejects God in favor of Hitler, is a religion to the German soldier. There is an old saying out in New Mexico, in the section of the state that still has a lot of rattlesnakes. Out there around Carrizozo, the rattlers sometimes take a sad toll of horses and cattle, and the cowmen are always on the alert against the poison of their fangs. They say out there, when you kill a rattler, you've got to kill him dead. You can't reform a rattlesnake or reason with him or convert him. The fighting men I've seen and talked to, after their experiences in Sicily and in Italy, feel that way about the Germans today. It may not be fashionable these days to hate, but I tell you that the men I've talked to abroad hate their enemy. This helps to keep their morale so high. Oh, back of the lines when things get dull, our boys complain a lot. If you met them then, you'd think perhaps that their morale was bad. But don't forget that the morale of our men is always just as good as it has to be. It had to be good last night and throughout this long, long day. And it had to be good tonight. And every report that comes back to us confirms the fact that it was and is good. That spirits are high. These troops of ours know their enemy well. In two and a half short years, they have been trained to deal with him. It looks as though that training had been well done indeed. I return you now to Bob Trout. That was Clinton Reynolds at our news headquarters here in New York. Another German Transocean Agency broadcast has just come in. This one was made by the Germans at five minutes to one Eastern wartime, in other words, about 16 minutes ago. It says the Allies, since Tuesday night, have been pouring strong reinforcements into the beachheads established on the French Channel coast. That's from the German Transocean Agency, that dispatch, or rather that story, saying that the Allies are pouring strong reinforcements into the beachheads 
along the French Channel coast. Since early Tuesday morning, actually late Monday night, we at Columbia's news headquarters have been bringing you the picture of the invasion, the overall view as reported in official statements, <clears throat> and the sidelights, the eyewitness stories of correspondents who accompanied our men or machines in particular operations. And now we have an eyewitness account which can be described by those two familiar initials, G.I. It was filed by New York Daily News correspondent Howard Whitman, representing the combined American press. It's not a story of mass movements of men and machines, but it does tell us just how some of our tougher soldiers reacted to this greatest military undertaking of all time. This is how the lengthy dispatch begins. At an invasion port in England, Howard Whitman says our men boarded the invasion ships as if they were headed for a Sunday school picnic. It didn't matter that death might be there too. For days, the cream of America's fighting men poured through the port and streamed aboard the invasion armada. Never were men more anxious to get on with so grim a task. The port was one of many from which the invasion sprang, but it was the spearhead port where the toughest of tough assault soldiers were loaded. Many of the men went aboard with shaved heads, particularly the hard-fighting assault troops. Whitman asked a couple of them why. One of them said, we just do it for the hell of it. But he was joking. The reason that thousands of invasion boys shaved their heads close is that this reduces the danger of infection in case of head wounds. All of them wore gas-protective clothing from top to bottom and carried waterproof gas masks. Their paymasters had given each man $4 in invasion money, and some of them had got more by cashing in their British funds. The correspondent met a staff sergeant who had hundreds of dollars of invasion currency. He said, I like to travel heavy. There's lots of stuff I want to buy when I go over there. Poker and dice games aboard the invasion craft were in progress continually, being played with invasion money. The correspondent says, These boys seemed unaware that they were standing at the crossroads of history. Most of them had embarked on the same ships three or four times before in practice exercises. They had stormed and assaulted beach after beach in England. Now they knew it was the real thing, and unbelievable as it seems, they were happy about it. Take Corporal Alphonse Pesky of Stapleton, Staten Island, the father of a boy seven and a girl of five. He said, after you practice for a thing so long, you get sick of practicing. We know what we've got to do, and we want to get the thing done. Maybe if we get the thing done, we'll get home someday. Sitting on a cargo hatch like a couple of pleasure travelers were Sergeant John Connors of Chicago and Private Herbert Campbell of Owensville, Ohio. Connors said, I wish this tub would get going. Let's get it over and knock their teeth out. That's the way we feel, and you can tell them back home that our morale was never better. I mean that. Then Campbell piped up and said, That goes for me. From what I hear, it's the people back home who have the worst jitters. The reporter added, I know it sounds incredibly calm, but that's the way it was. The invasion was mounted along a stretch of the British coast, and so tremendous was the operation that it can best be understood by picturing Britain as a series of funnels with their open ends in the interior of the country and their spouts at embarkation points along the invasion coast. The assault forces, men, and equipment poured down these funnels in accordance with a timetable that our correspondent says was fantastically detailed. First, the invasion forces were gathered, some of them months ago, in concentrated areas in the interior of Great Britain. Then, within the last two months, they were moved into marshalling areas where they were briefed and equipped for the invasion. 
The final step was to move to the embarkation points and onto invasion craft. At this particular port from which Mr. Whitman writes, the troops embarked directly from docks, some of them stepping aboard LCI, that is landing craft infantry, and others ferried out to big ATAs, Auxiliary Transport Assault. At another embarkation point nearby, equipment was being simultaneously loaded, heavy guns, tank destroyers, armored cars, jeeps, and amphibious fighting vehicles. These were driven to concrete ramps and run straight up into the open jaws of LSTs, landing ships' tanks. It was exactly one minute ahead of schedule. The timetable, worked out months in advance, called for completion at midnight. Whitman was with Brigadier General Charles Thrasher, the commanding general of a southern base section in England, shortly after the successful completion of the loading. He says, you never saw a happier man than General Thrasher. A year and a half's work in mounting this operation. A year and a half of one of the most complex jobs a man ever undertook, and General Thrasher delivered the goods a minute ahead of schedule. Another happy man was Brigadier General Frank Ross, Chief Army Transportation Officer in the European Theater of Operations. He said thousands of invasion craft were loaded backward. Men and equipment that were to be poured upon beaches first had to be loaded last. Everything had to be placed in the assault boats in the order they would be needed on the beachheads. And then Howard Whitman goes on to say, it was hard to see the faces of our men beneath the welter of equipment. Some of the things they carried were field packs, sidearms, rifles, machine guns, walkie-talkie radio sets, field glasses, medical supplies, jackets stuffed with hand grenades, smoke bombs, heavy loads of ammunition, prepared dynamite charges, flamethrowers, grenade launchers, bazookas, TNT charges on the ends of poles, and full anti-poison gas equipment. And one of them also carried a guitar. Another had a red and white sign painted on his back, Danger, Minefield. Several of them had plucked flowers on their way to the embarkation point, and they stuck the flowers in their helmets. As they hopped from their motor trucks to board the ships, embarkation officers checked every man by calling out his last name and having him respond with his first name and middle initial. Just before he stepped aboard, he was given a life preserver for himself and a life preserver for every piece of equipment he carried. He was also given seven sticks of chewing gum, four boxes of matches, a box of body insectide powder, three boxes of K rations, three boxes of D rations, a pipe, cigarette and chewing tobacco, water purification tablets, a carton of cigarettes or the makings of cigarettes, one razor blade, a tin of canned heat, and 12 seasickness pills. At this embarkation point, the first two invaders to embark were lieutenants from New York State, Stanley White of Abiscon and Robert Edlin of New Albany. Then co correspondent Howard Whitman gives us several additional sidelights on just how our men started for France. And here they are. He says, there's an old army saying, there's one in every outfit. At one point, at one port, the soldier who qualified for this dubious distinction was a befuddled private who dropped his carbine overboard the minute after he embarked on his invasion barge. His company commander sent a motor launch ashore, and within 15 minutes, a new carbine was provided. Of all places to bump into one another, two privates from Endicott, New York, Robert Bettikoffer and Charles Kiske, were talking on board the invasion boat waiting the jump-off signal when they spotted the buddy of their childhood days, 
He was seaman Gordon Croppett, also of Endicott, New York, a member of the ship's crew. And here are several additional of these sidelights which correspondent Howard Whitman has sent in from England in this description of just what it was like when the soldiers boarded their invasion craft on the coast of England. He says nearly every vehicle taken aboard for the invasion had its name painted on it by its crew. There was everything from a jeep named Filthy Flora to a heavy vehicle called Give em Hell. Others were named Axis Doom, Adolf's Answer, Dyspepsia, Ten Shilling Annie, and For Ladies Only. The final mail delivery was made to the invasion troops as they waited aboard the assault boats for the takeoff signal. The Army post office carriers and motor launches made the rounds laden with mail pouches. On one ship, one soldier was handed 50 letters in one delivery. Another got an airmail letter posted in New York only four days before. Soldiers who were briefed for the occasion, who were given advance information on the D-Day plans, were kept under heavy guard in sealed camps before the embarkation hour. One briefed soldier left his credentials behind when he went to deliver ammunition to a carbine company and was picked up by a guard officer who ordered a guard sergeant to cock your rifle and keep it trained on that soldier while I investigate. The soldier stood trembling at the business end of the guard's gun barrel until the major in charge arrived. The major said, we've found his credentials. He's okay. He's a Georgia rebel, just like me. I've been reading a lengthy and colorful dispatch filed from an invasion port in England and written by New York Daily News correspondent Howard Whitman for the Combined Allied Press. A very detailed description of what it was like there on the invasion coast of Great Britain as the men boarded their invasion craft to cross the channel. Earlier in our CBS invasion coverage, we told you that German prisoners and Allied wounded were being brought back to Britain. And now the same correspondent, Howard Whitman, whose dispatch I've just been reading to you, has just sent in some details on our prisoners and our wounded. This dispatch has just come off the wire, and it's being handed to me now. Here is what Howard Whitman says. The first German prisoners and first casualties to reach this port somewhere in Britain were landed late Tuesday afternoon. The prisoners, who'd been fished out of the channel after their German craft was sunk by invasion warships, were brought in aboard a British light cruiser at 7 o'clock in the evening, British summertime. They were immediately herded into a compound to be questioned by intelligence officers. These Germans, who were, who were among the first to feel the sting of the second front, straggled along the pier like half-drowned rats. It was clear from the expressions on their faces that they had had enough. In a subtle way, they seemed happy to be in the safety of Allied captivity. The first wounded to be disembarked at this port were soldiers brought back from the French beachhead in a minesweeper. They were carried ashore by litter bearers and taken to an emergency hospital near the pier. This hospital is merely a receiving station, and all casualties, except cases too serious to be moved, are evacuated to inland base hospitals within 24 hours. At 5.30 p.m. British time, a tank landing craft put in with casualties, including dead. Others were taken to a receiving station. Two cases were too serious to be moved to a base hospital. This port, says Howard Whitman, this port from which I write, has been equipped to handle a tremendous number of casualties if necessary. There are hospital facilities for 6,000 wounded in the immediate vicinity, and at three points there are lines of 75 ambulances ready to dash toward the beach. Immense two-ton refrigerators loaded with plasma and blood are deployed in the port area, camouflaged under canvas, and ready to supply emergency treatment to shock cases and seriously wounded. 
70 days' supplies of medical and surgical materials are supplied at nearby field hospitals and tent camps have been set up for cases of minor injury and shock. Evacuation teams of 40 men each had been established at piers and beaches to coordinate the handling of casualties. When a ship comes with casualties, these teams immediately supply it with medical supplies to take back to France so that casualties evacuated on the next trip may be cared for during the crossing. When a serious case is taken off a ship, the litter is immediately tagged with a red card indicating the need for special immediate treatment. And that was the very latest dispatch sent in by Howard Whitman. I read you his lengthy, his very lengthy and detailed uh, description of the soldiers embarking from that invasion port to make their trip across the channel. He remained at that port somewhere on the coast of Britain, and late Tuesday afternoon he saw the first German prisoners and the first casualties coming back. Incidentally, uh, you perhaps recall just a few moments ago in that late dispatch, which was just handed me, it just came in, I read you that Mr. Whitman says it was clear from the expressions on the faces of the German prisoners that they'd had enough. They seemed to be happy in the safety of Allied captivity. Perhaps you remember a few hours ago we had a dispatch from a German prison camp somewhere here in the United States which told us that the German prisoners in that prison camp refused to believe that the invasion had been started and that the liberation of the continent had indeed begun. The German prisoners at that camp somewhere in the United States said it's all Allied propaganda. While we're talking about our wounded, giving you this late dispatch by Howard Whitman, but part of which was written in Cableese, incidentally, you may have heard that 51 wounded American soldiers 37 wounded Canadians and 43 civilians arrived in Jersey City today on the exchange liner, the Gripsholm. As the ship docked, an army band played pistol packin' mama. The American soldiers were taken to Halloran General Hospital at Staten Island, and they immediately wanted to hear invasion news. One soldier, who was wounded and captured at Dieppe and has now been brought home, said, We'll give them hell this time. Another one, who was able to walk to an ambulance driven by a whack, said he wished he could help over there instead of being helpless over here. Only eight American civilian, civilians were brought back on this fourth repatriation trip of the exchange liner at Gripsholm, which an army officer said had a very quiet and uneventful crossing. The rest of the passengers were citizens of South America and Central America. The Canadian so soldiers are still aboard the Gripsholm, but they will be removed from the ship sometime tonight for transportation to Canada. And now here's another dispatch which has just come in and which is being handed to me here at our Columbia News headquarters. This is a dispatch written by a correspondent representing the combined American press, Bob Miller, aboard a United States PT boat off France. And here is his description. He says, The invasion caught the Germans completely by surprise. It was not until 3.30 in the morning that a German reconnaissance plane sighted the invading forces moving into position, and then it was too late to be effective. Dawn revealed the most amazing sight of this or any other war. There were ships everywhere I looked, says Bob Miller. Planes were darting through the clouds above them. Heavy broadsides of American and British battleships and cruisers rumbled through the overcast, and yellow flames from the gun muzzles all but obscured the warships as thousands of tons of explosives were sent to the shore against German installations. Destroyers and landing craft jockeyed for position, awaiting the opportunity to discharge their cargoes. And then our correspondent goes on to say, so completely asleep were the Germans that British minesweepers, 
escorted by a PT squadron, ran interference for the invasion by clearing a broad path right up to the beaches without once being challenged. This unprecedented maneuver was carried out without the loss of a single PT boat. Despite rough seas, which left the crews bruised and battered, and many of the men acutely seasick, the American PT boats shepherded the minesweepers along the chartered route all night. Because of the slowness of the minesweepers, it had been necessary to begin the operation in broad daylight Monday, but perfect air cover by the United States Air Forces and the Royal Air Force kept away any German planes. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. setting of the Camellia House, Chicago's unique supper rendezvous in the Drake Hotel, Columbia presents the music of Bill Snyder, his piano and his orchestra. dancing at the Drake this a.m. with Cole Porter's What Is This Thing Called Love?
a swell tune. I'll walk alone. Medley, it's a lucky day with the song in my heart.
Bill Snyder takes to the Spanish-American way now as he plays Miser Lou and Tumbando Candy.
From the luxuriously afforded Camellia House and the internationally famous Drake Hotel, Columbia is bringing you the music of Bill Snyder, his piano and his orchestra. Continuing with our program, we hear that old favorite, Body and Soul. journey now with Bill Snyder by the waters of Minnetonka. Thank you. 
Then we time again with Bill Snyder and his officer as we hear Serenade and Mama.
Turning to Romantic Bands later now, Bill Snyder plays Yours is My Heart Alone. serenading you from the beautiful Camellia House of the Drake Hotel along the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago. Everett Clark speaking, this program has been a presentation to Columbia Chicago Studios in the Wrigley Building. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.